Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of So Strange. I'm your host, Andy Myers. I'm an author and a paranormal researcher who decorated for fall during the first week of August. <laughs> I admit it's a little early, but I make no apologies. No offense to summer, but I'm totally ready for cool weather, football, beautiful leaves, and campfires, complete with s'mores and ghost stories. I've got a great show lined up for you today. We're talking about synchronicity. Those improbable moments that seem to have a deeper meaning. Those coincidences that defy statistical probability. Those chance encounters when we find ourselves between the crosshairs of fate and destiny. Synchronicity is, of course, open to interpretation by the person who experiences it. Do moments like this occur through sheer happenstance? Or are they random occurrences with no deeper meaning or correlation? Or can they be considered minor miracles? Uncanny moments in time where the gears of the universe stop spinning for just long enough that we can peek inside and glimpse the inner workings of our reality. Whatever you choose to believe, I think you'll soon realize that this world can be so serendipitous and so strange. The first story here is called Mark Twain's Death and Birth Coincide with Haley's Comet. Samuel Langhorne Clemens, known more popular by his nom de plume, Mark Twain, was born in 1835, the same year that Haley's Comet made its first appearance. The comet made a second appearance in 1910, and that was the year that Twain died. And the author, according to the New York Times, famously predicted that the two events would coincide. He's quoted as saying... The Almighty has said, no doubt, now here are these two unaccountable freaks. They came in together, they must go out together. So, little fun fact, uh, Haley is the only known short period comet that is regularly visible to the naked eye from Earth, and thus the only naked eye comet that can appear twice in a human lifetime. So Haley's Comet last appeared in the inner parts of the solar system in 1986, and it will next appear in mid-2061. You know, I remember Halley's Comet. In 1986, I was five years old, and I, I distinctly remember sitting on my back porch with my dad, and he was, you know, kind of showing it to me up in the sky, and, you know, as a little five-year-old, I don't think I really understood the the magnitude of what it was, but, you know, I, I could see it, and it looked like a little smudge, a little streak in the sky. But I, I can't help but wonder if, you know, Mark Twain... Uh, saying that he came in with Haley's Comet and he's going out with it. You know, was that a, a premonition? You know, was that an intuitive moment, a glimpse into a, a future that he was unable to change? Or was it more of like a self-fulfilling prophecy? You know, he said it and then it became so. The second story here is called Stephen Hawking Shares His Birth and Death Dates with Galileo and Einstein, Respectively. Theoretical physicist, cosmologist, and author Stephen Hawking was famously born on the 300th anniversary of Galileo's death and died on what would have been Einstein's 139th birthday. That said, the far more confounding question of statistical improbability surrounding Hawking's life was the fact that he survived to be 76 years old despite living with Lou Gehrig's disease. Though we know very little about the disease, uh, according to Scientific America, most of the people diagnosed with that condition only lived for about five years past diagnosis. Yet Hawking's survived for more than five additional decades, allowing him to share his crucial insights and gifts with the world, not to mention his legendary humor. So let's talk about uh, birthday correlations here, birthday coincidences and synchronicity. So if we had a room full of 23 people, eh, about the size of an average school classroom nowadays. If we had 23 people, there is a 50% chance that you would share your birthday with another person in the classroom. Uh, the odds go up to 70%, technically 70.6%, if there are 30 people in the room. And if there's 40 people in your room, there is an 89% chance that you could share your birthday with another person. So my birthday... Not that you asked, but I'm sharing <laughs> my birthday is February 17th. 
which makes me an Aquarius. Uh, ask me what that means. I don't know. <laughs> Astrology is not my specialty. Uh, but I am an Aquarius, and I share my birthday with a couple famous people, much like you probably do as well. I share a birthday with Michael Jordan, Ed Sheeran, and Paris Hilton, believe it or not. So I guess I'm in decent company there. The next story here is called Political Adversaries. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died within hours of each other on July 4th. The relationship between former presidents Thomas Jefferson and John Adams took quite a few twists and turns over the years. They began as allies, then gradually grew into adversaries as their politics divided them. As the last two surviving members of the American revolutionaries from the British Empire, they eventually reconciled and corresponded by letter until their final years. They famously died within hours of one another on the 4th of July, exactly 50 years to the day after having signed the Declaration of Independence. Although they died on the same day, uh, John Adams technically passed away two hours after Thomas Jefferson. And it's known that with his very last breath, John Adams uttered the words, Thomas Jefferson still survives. Now, people nearby uh, knew that this was in fact not true since Jefferson had passed away a couple hours prior. My theory is that you know, as a person's passing away, the, the curtain that divides our world from the afterlife, it gets rather thin. And I wonder if John Adams saw Thomas Jefferson, you know, in the afterlife, in heaven, the other side, whatever you choose to cause that. And maybe when he saw him, that's why he said Jefferson is still alive. Now, I don't know if the people present interpreted as as that, but, you know, you hear stories like this all the time, especially if you were to talk with a nurse or, or a hospice worker, you know, watching a person slowly uh, get closer to meeting their demise. They, it's like they have this moment, this lucid moment, um, you know, like a, a widow sits up in bed and she, she suddenly looks really alert and she reaches out to, you know, seemingly nobody. And she says, Bob, you look so young. I love you, Bob. You know, hospice workers and nurses are like, what the hell's going on? There's nobody in the room. I have literally heard hundreds, if not thousands, of credible cases like this. Uh, so there, there is, you know, there is some uh, validity to the fact that that divide between this life and the afterlife, it does get pretty thin. And I wonder if that's, uh, that, that's what was going on there with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, in my humble opinion... Uh, Adams and Jefferson's life may have been rooted in fate and destiny. I mean, to have such a historical impact on our country by creating and signing the Declaration of Independence and then to have a falling out and then to, you know, reconcile their differences. And then they pass away on the same day, exactly 50 years later after signing the Declaration on July 4th. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? It's uh, not only so strange, it in my opinion, it suggests that perhaps there's some order in the universe, you know, some sort of a grand plan, a, a plot or a script that's destined to play out in our theater of life. It's almost as if the universe was like, okay, uh, now that your destiny has been fulfilled, you each have exactly 50 years left to do whatever you want with your lives, but then it's time to punch the old time clock and check out. And this story is one of my favorites in the realm of, uh, of synchronicity. This next article is titled, A Meteor Hit the Comet Family's Home. National Geographic reports that your odds of being killed by a meteor are roughly 1 in 1,600,000. So the odds would seem even smaller that a meteor which has been flying through space for more than 4.5 billion years without hitting a target would hit the home of a family with the last name Comet. According to Time Magazine, in a bizarre case of cosmic synchronicity, that is exactly what happened to one family in France. Thankfully, no one was hurt, and the comets are now the proud owners of their own extremely rare extraterrestrial rock. You know, a few years ago, my daughter Skye went through a phase where she was afraid of black holes and meteorites. <laughs> she was probably four or five years old, and I don't know, I guess she was watching a show 
on YouTube Kids or something about outer space facts or something like that. And I assured her that her own bedroom closet was scarier than a black hole. Because seriously, like everything that goes in there disappears into the clutter, never to be seen again. Kind of like when socks um, disappear from the dryer and you can't find the matching pair. <laughs> but as far as meteorites, I assured her that most of them burn up in the upper atmosphere before reaching the ground. And those that do come into uh, contact with the Earth are usually like the size of a grain of sand. Uh, that being said, uh, maybe I won't tell her about the comet family <laughs> If I do, she'll probably be wearing a helmet to bed and will refuse to ever visit France. Next up, we have an article titled, uh, Anthony Hopkins happened upon a signed copy of the book he was searching for in a train station. In the early 1970s, Anthony Hopkins was slated to play Kostya in a film adaptation of The Girl from, from Petrovka. To prepare for the role, he set out to read the book, but was unable to find a copy in any bookstore despite a rigorous search. Then, as internet legend has it, while sitting in a London train station, he noticed a copy that of the very book that someone had left behind. When he opened it, he found that the book had also been signed by its author, George Pfeiffer. Okay, so if you're the kind of person who believes in signs and messages from the universe... I, for one, am that kind of person, then maybe it's not a stretch to assume that Anthony Hopkins was destined to play that particular role, and maybe finding the book by sheer happenstance uh, was like a, you know, like a little nudge from the powers that be. And uh, speaking of a book-related synchronicity, uh, my sister once experienced something kind of sort of similar that left her scratching her head. She had recently gotten engaged. I believe that just the prior day she had gotten engaged. And at the time, my sister and I shared an office facility. And in the lobby, we had uh, bookshelves with a lot of books, some of which had to do with synchronicity and, you know, signs from the universe type things. And uh, as she's chit-chatting with one of her clients before an appointment, uh, she's, you know, was telling her client the good news if she just got engaged the night before. And her client just, like, mindlessly picks up a book from the shelf, you know, just kind of opens it up. And out of the book fell an old photograph. Uh, it looked like it was from the 1980s. And they both kind of cocked their heads and they're like, what in the world? So they picked up the photograph that had fallen from the book and my sister immediately recognized it. It was a picture of herself as a newborn baby and our dad was holding her. Now, our dad passed away in 1997, but you know, as to why that photo was in that book, we weren't sure. And why that client grabbed, you know, randomly grabbed that particular book, we also don't know. But we kind of took it as, you know, maybe a sign from the universe, a synchronicity uh, that alluded to the fact that, you know, it was dad's way of saying, okay, you know, congratulations on the engagement and the upcoming wedding, but you'll always be my baby girl. And speaking of books... If you're a reader, if you're trying to squeeze in some last-minute summer reading before fall begins, I have uh, written and published four books to date. I'll leave a link of, uh, to them in the show notes. Uh, my latest book is actually a true story that's uh, absolutely overflowing with coincidences, synchronicities, signs from the universe, and that kind of thing. So you can check it out if you're in the mood for something unique and different, and I think it'll be a story that really speaks to you on a lot of levels if, if you're into this kind of thing. Up next, we have a story titled, John Wilkes Booth's Brother Saved Abraham Lincoln's Son from Death. John Wilkes Booth and Abraham Lincoln reportedly had a coincidental family connection long before Booth shot Lincoln on that fateful day in April of 1865. Booth's brother, Edwin, was a somewhat famous stage actor who supported the Union during the Civil War. While in a train station in New Jersey, Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln, leaned up against a stopped train and nearly fell onto the tracks as it started up again. Edwin Booth grabbed him by the collar and saved him just in time. The younger Lincoln recognized his hero and wrote about the incident, but it wasn't until years later that Booth found out exactly who he had saved. So basically, the brother of John Wilkes Booth saves Abraham Lincoln's son, and then Booth kills uh, Abraham Lincoln. That's that's a tangled fishing knot of karma that I can't quite wrap my head around. As told in an episode of NPR's This American Life, 
titled No Coincidence, No Story, Stephen and Helen Lee had just gotten engaged when they made a shocking family discovery. While looking through family photos during their engagement party in New York, they realized that the bride's mother and the groom's late father had nearly gotten married in Korea in the 1960s, but moved on to other relationships because their parents disapproved. So there you have it. <laughs> in a cosmic roll of the dice, uh, the two could have been siblings, but instead they were born into different families, and then they ended up as, as lovers. So life, life is a funny little thing, isn't it? Up next, one woman survived the Titanic, Britannic, and Olympic shipwrecks. Violet Jessup was a nurse and ocean liner stewardess who earned the nickname Miss Unsinkable by surviving both the accidents of the Titanic in 1912 and its sister ship, the HMHS Britannic, which met the same fate in 1916. Jessup was also reportedly on board a third boat, the RMS Olympic, when it hit a warship, but fortunately the Olympic stayed afloat. So if I lived... Just saying, if I lived in the early 1900s, I would have, <laughs> I would not have gotten on the Olympic if I knew Violet was going to be on board. I'd be like, oh, the lady, is that the lady who survived the Titanic and the Britannic? And she's on this ship? Nope, I, I'm good. I'll just like wait here till the next ferry comes by. Thanks very much. But some people, you know, say that there's no such thing as bad luck. But then you look at cases like this and it really makes you wonder. Uh, sounds like Violet had the worst luck in the whole world, but... Then again, I mean, if we take a glasses half full approach, maybe she was the luckiest person in the whole world because, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, she did survive each event. Next, we have a story titled, The First and Last Battles of the Civil War Were Fought Next to the Same Man's Property in Different Towns. The Civil War broke out in 1861 with the First Battle of Bull Run. Bull Run actually references the name of a stream that wound its way through the farm of a man named Wilmer McLean. Wilmer lived in Manassas, Virginia. After the devastation of the battle, McLean left to find safety in a new home with his wife in Apatomax, Virginia, and for roughly four years he was indeed safe as the bloody war carried on throughout the nation. In 1865, the war came to a close when Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at the Apatomax <laughs> Courthouse, which was just steps away from McLean's new property. That's crazy. <laughs> that's, that's wild. He tried to get away from it, and uh, it ended you know, just, uh, just a few steps away from him. You know, my great-great-great-grandfather, uh, Joseph Myers, uh, during the in between battles, actually, uh, during the Civil War, uh, he carved uh, a little wooden locket. It was a little wooden decoration that he carved with a pocket knife, and he he carved it, you know, sitting underneath a tree in the shade, you know, just catching his breath in between battles. And uh, Joseph Myers, uh, he served from 1862 to 1865 in the 89th Ohio Infantry, and my grandma gifted me this little locket. Uh, along with some other family heirlooms when I was 10 years old. And it's it's really cool to have something that was created during such a pivotal point in American history. But even more than that, the, the little hand-carved wooden uh, locket, it, it makes me think how amazing it is that any of us are here today at all. I mean, you know, had my great-great-great-grandpa died in that war, my grandpa wouldn't have been born, and then neither would my dad, and therefore I wouldn't be here either. I don't know, it's just, it's amazing to think how many close calls our ancestors had to survive in order for the family tree to carry on and eventually allow us to be born. It kind of boggles the mind when you really think about it. Up next, the first and last soldiers killed in World War I are buried next to each other. By the time World War I came to an end, it had claimed an estimated one million British lives. Yet somehow, without any planning, the first recorded English casualty of the war, 17-year-old soldier John Parr, and the last recorded casualty, 30-year-old George Edwin Ellison, reportedly have graves that face one another just 15 feet apart in the St. Symphorian Military Cemetery.
So this kind of reminded me of another synchronicity involving wars, uh, and it it's one that has to do with Archduke Franz Ferdinand. He was uh, assassinated in Sarajevo on June 18th of 1914. Uh, and history, it's historically, it's kind of considered the motive for the beginning of the First World War. So years later, it was brought to the public's attention that the license plate of the car that Ferdinand was assassinated in, it may have contained a, a prophetic message of sorts. The license plate number was A111118. And as fate would have it, the First World War officially ended on November 11th, 1918. Now, a skeptic might say that it's merely a benign coincidence, but you know, regardless if one believes in cryptic signs and synchronicities, it has to be admitted that this is truly strange, really bizarre. And at the end of the day, it's the kind of it's the it's the kind of you know content that conspiracy theorists live for. And speaking of uh, cryptic messages, uh, I should inform you that the secret letter for today's episode is P, P as in pumpkin. And you might want to write that down uh, if you're new to the show. Each episode in Season 1 contains a secret letter. And if you gather the letter from each episode and uh, add them up and unscramble the, the message, you will have discovered the secret word of the season. Now, episode, um, excuse me, Season 1 is comprised of 12 episodes, so the secret word will be comprised of 12 letters. You get, you get my drift. <laughs> and the word is paranormal-themed in nature. And uh, anyone who's, you know, willing to play along and, and figure out the secret word, if you email that to my office, you will be uh, included in some perks and prizes and bonus episodes and some fun, uh, you know, kind of behind the scenes content. So I thought it'd be a little fun thing to do. But anyway, jot it down in the notes section of your phone or get an old fashioned notepad. Today's secret letter is P. Up next... One man missed two Malaysian air flights that crashed. In 2014, there were two tragic plane crashes involving Malaysian air flights. The first was shot down over Ukraine, and the second disappeared without a trace somewhere over the Indian Ocean in the greatest aviation mystery of all time. Beyond the fact that both incidents involved the same airline in such a short time span, there was, no, there was another striking coincidence. A Dutch cyclist named Martin de Jong was scheduled to take both flights, but cheated death by bumping his ticket at the 11th hour when cheaper options became available. Hey, that just goes to show, you know, if you can be flexible with your travel plans at the last minute, you might just live to cycle another day. The next story is a father and son were the first and last casualties during the construction of the Hoover Dam, 14 years apart. According to the United States Bureau of Reclamation, out of the estimated 21,000 people that worked on the building of the Hoover Dam, there were 96 deaths on the job site. Among the first was J.G. Tierney, who drowned along with his colleague on December 20, 1922, while conducting a geological survey prior to construction. Fourteen years later, on the exact anniversary of Tierney's death, the final death of the project was recorded. It was his son, Patrick Tierney, who, according to the Las Vegas Review-Journal, fell from an electrical tower. You know, I do, I do realize that some of these synchronicities are a little bit morbid, so to lighten the mood, here's a, here's a, a little bit of a feel-good story for you. And it's called, A Woman's Husband Found a Dollar She Wrote On, Hoping to Find a Husband. As told on an episode of NPR's This American Life, Esther and Paul Grachen had been seeing each other for a short period of time when Paul asked her to be his girlfriend. That day, while paying for a sandwich, he noticed that a dollar bill he was about to hand the cashier had the name Esther written on it in pencil. How strange, he thought, that this should happen right when he was thinking about their relationship. He kept the dollar bill and decided to frame it and give it to her as a gift. She was utterly speechless when she saw it, but told him to ask her about it another time. Years passed, they got engaged, then they got married, and the framed dollar resurfaced in their home. 
Apparently, Esther had written her name on the dollar and a few other dollars after a breakup and said to herself at the time that she would marry the man that brought it back to her. She didn't tell him why she was so speechless because she thought bringing up marriage so soon in their relationship would scare him off. But she believed in the moment that he was the one. Now, if that doesn't put a smile on your face, ladies and gentlemen, uh, <laughs> you might want to check your pulse. That's kind of heartwarming. And uh, I don't know, maybe we should all use Esther's technique. You know, I'm single. Maybe I should write Andy on a few dollar bills and drop them from an airplane over my hometown of Omaha. And whoever brings the dollars back to me is destined to be my soulmate. And I can just imagine it. <laughs> With my luck, I'd be at one of my speaking events selling books after the show and big burly man named Cletus comes up to me, hands me a $20 bill. He winks at me, leans in for a hug. His chest hair ever so gently grazes my cheek. Things will get awkward pretty fast. <laughs> Anywho, I digress. No offense to the Cletuses of the world or hairy-chested men in general. Uh, perhaps I should just stay single and appreciate the snuggles that I get from my cat. By the way, big shout-out to my cat Darwin. He's a, he's a big fan of the show. Up next, we have a story titled 10-year-old Laura Buxton releases a red balloon and another 10-year-old named Laura Buxton finds it. In a story told on the WYNC podcast called Radio Lab in 2001, a 10-year-old girl named Laura Buxton stood in her front yard with a red balloon. On the side of the balloon, she had written the words, Please return to Laura Buxton along with her address. And then she released it into a strong wind. The balloon traveled roughly 140 miles south before descending and finally landed in the yard of another 10-year-old girl. The second girl's name was also Laura Buxton. After getting in touch and explaining the coincidence, the girls decided to meet and discovered a whole range of uncanny similarities. Not only did they look and dress alike, but both girls had three-year-old chocolate labs, a gray rabbit, and a guinea pig, and both had, in fact, brought their guinea pigs to the meeting. So I'd love to, you know, present this to a, a you know, mathematician and ask, what are the odds of this actually happening? Like, are you kidding me? I mean, I have so many questions. First of all, why did she release the balloon in the first place? You know, was it some sort of social experiment or whatnot? Secondly, who brings guinea pigs to a meeting at the park? <laughs> and thirdly, uh, what were the names of those chocolate labs? Because, like, I imagine their names being, like, uh, yeah, Coco, maybe Snickerdoodle. But uh, I'm only speculating. But most importantly, how in the heck is this statistically possible that, you know, two girls with the same name meet under these circumstances? And, you know, Buxton, it's not even a, a common last name. But if nothing else, we can assume that this is a that there's, you know, some sort of universal consciousness holding our world together. And if that's the case, uh, you know, it certainly has a sense of humor from time to time. Next, we have a story titled, Joan Ginther scored more than 20 million in four scratch lottery wins. As Business Insider notes, we should be a bit skeptical of the coincidence of Joan Ginther winning the lottery four times over. Not because it smacks of urban legend, as so many of these stories do, but because the Stanford PhD graduate studied statistics and may have had stacked the odds in her favor. Yet even with the help of a strategy, the chances of successfully pulling off a four-time win are rather low. Ginther scored multiple million-dollar scratch-off tickets each of the four times, winning a grand total of more than $20 million. Now, I'm, you know, okay, I'm a little jealous. <laughs> Ultimately, for the most part, I'm happy for Joan. But, I mean, if she's like a Ph.D. graduate student, she's, I'm going to say she's probably going to be making really good money. And I, I can't help but think to myself sometimes with these lottery cases, like, why can't it be like a single mom who wins? So, you know, like a single mom who works hard and tries hard and has mouths to feed and diapers to buy. You know, those are the people that really need it. You know, thinking back a couple years ago, and I don't remember how I was put in touch with this lady, but I was talking to a lady. She was, a, you know, an intuitive or, or a psychic, and I think she was based out of Wisconsin, but we were just kind of shooting the breeze, and she said that one time she dreamt of lottery numbers. 
Um, she, she dreamt lottery numbers. She woke up the next morning. She wrote them down. And apparently her and her boyfriend were going out to dinner that night. They were going to meet up at the movie theater for a date. And for whatever reason, she was running late. So on the way to the movie, she, she texted her boyfriend and she was like, hey, can you stop at the gas station, pick up a lottery ticket, play these exact numbers? You know, and they met up later. He handed her a ticket and she was like, what the heck? He was like, oh, sorry. You know, I was in a hurry. I just I just grabbed a generic ticket with random numbers. Well, he sh he should have played the numbers that she dreamt of, because if he did, they would have won like ten million dollars. And uh, last I heard, they were still together. And man, I, I'm just thinking to myself, if if her relationship can survive that, it can survive anything, because for most people, that would be grounds for a breakup. <laughs> Next, Sutomo Yamagachi survived both Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Sutomo Yamaguchi is either incredibly lucky or incredibly unlucky, depending on how you look at it. Unlucky in that he happened to be present in both Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the time of their catastrophic atomic bombings, and yet lucky that he miraculously survived both. Yamaguchi reportedly fled Hiroshima in search of in search of safety, winding up in Nagasaki only to see a second flash of white light that would cover over half of his body in burns from radioactive ash. Yamaguchi is the only person recognized by the Japanese government as having survived both bombings. Uh, sadly, he died in 2010 of cancer. You know, it is um, unlucky, uh, you know, to be at both bombings. But at the same time, assuming that he was maybe in his 20s when this occurred, and then he passed in 2010, you know, just crunching the numbers, at least he lived a, a very long lifetime, which which is surprising. You know, you take that amount of radiation. I'm not surprised he passed from cancer, but I, I am surprised he lived to be such an old age. But um, that's that's a good thing though. I'm glad he was able to uh, move on with his life and um, yeah. Up next story called a couple found wedding vows in a bottle written on the same day that they got married. As CBS News reported, Fred and Lynette Dubendorf were strolling down the beach with their dog, picking up the odd bits of trash they found along the way to throw away when they noticed something in a small plastic bottle that had washed up on the shore. Upon closer look, they found that it was a message containing the marriage vows of another couple, a couple named Melanie Kloska and Matt Bears, who had recently had their wedding ceremony on a beach across Lake Michigan. The note contained the couple's address and the wedding date, which the Dubendorfs were amazed to discover was the same as their own wedding date. They took it as a happy sign that both of their marriages were meant to be and wrote them a letter to congratulate the newlyweds. There you go. What a beautiful story. What are the odds? <laughs> Find ourselves asking ourselves that question a lot this particular episode. Next story is titled, Amanda Birch found out her professor and mother had lived in the same house. In a story for NPR's Hidden Brain, a radio show and podcast about life's unseen patterns, a woman named Amanda Birch recounted an astonishing discovery she made while talking to her, to her writing professor at the University of Rhode Island. The professor mentioned that she lived in a small Vermont town, which Birch excitedly shared was the same town her mother had grown up in. When Birch told her professor her mother's maiden name, that's when things got really eerie. They realized that the professor now lived in the very same house that her mother had grown up in. It's kind of funny when you piece piece that together with somebody. You know, it happened just yesterday, actually. I had a local um, uh, electrical guy who was doing some construction work in town, knocked on my door and just informed me they were going to be trimming some trees in my backyard near the power lines, and he was wearing a vikings hat you know and as he was walking off just you know just to be friendly i was like hey go vikings i assumed it was minnesota vikings football team he said oh no it's actually a north high omaha north high vikings and i said oh no way that's that's the high school i went to he said oh yeah what year he's like i graduated 91 i was like oh I, me in 99 i was like you know yay vikings you know but those correlations are out there 
you know, you discover you lived in the same house as somebody, went to the same high school as somebody, or, you know, maybe grew up in the same town, or you know a mutual acquaintance. So perhaps it's not statistically impossible, but uh, nonetheless, it's kind of cool when it happens. Next, we have solar eclipses require such specific conditions that they're almost impossible. Just as we have remarkable coincidences, so does our solar system. The total solar eclipse is such a strange and unlikely occurrence that throughout history, it's been interpreted as a paranormal omen and mythologized with folklore. The sun and the moon are very different sizes. The phenomenon is able to take place because the sun is about 400 times wider than the moon, but also 400 times further away, making the two appear the same size. According to live science, if the sun were any bigger or the moon were any further away, we would likely never see a total solar eclipse because the moon, wouldn't, the moon would not appear wide enough to block our view. On this note, uh, I'll remind you that there's a really fascinating correlation between eclipses and UFO sightings. Like, for real, it's an actual deal. Uh, but it's kind of one of those chicken-and-the-egg type mysteries because it makes me wonder, you know, are people seeing more UFOs during eclipses simply because more people are looking to the sky at that moment? Or is it possible that extraterrestrials take an interest in eclipses for personal or scientific reasons? And I don't claim to have an answer for this, but maybe we can dive deeper into that in a, in a further episode. Next story is short and sweet, but it's titled, Flight 666 Flew Into Hell on Friday the 13th. There are a lot of coincidences on the internet involving the number 666, but this story happens to be true. Finn Air Flight 666 departed from Copenhagen, uh, from Copenhagen Denmark, and landed in Helsinki, uh, code, code sign H-E-L. And this happened on Friday the 13th. <laughs> you read that right. Flight 666 flew straight to hell on the most nefarious day of, uh, of the year. Thankfully for the passengers aboard, the coincidence ended there. They landed safely at their final destination. And final destination <laughs> makes me wonder if that's a play on words, you know, alluding to the horror movie franchise from the early 2000s, but uh, regardless, I'm glad the flight uh, landed safely. Next, we have a story titled, A Couple Found Themselves in the Same Childhood Photo. Amy Maiden and Nick Wheeler were sifting through old family photographs in anticipation of their upcoming wedding, only to discover a striking coincidence. They had unknowingly taken their first picture together as children 11 years before they had met. Though the two grew up over 300 miles apart in opposite corners of England, Nick's family had been on a beach vacation in Amy's hometown, and the photograph of the two shows Amy and her family sitting just a few feet behind Nick, playing in the sand. You know, I've heard a few other accounts similar to this one. You know, spouses or significant others discover an old family photo, and, you know, they realize that they were both present at the same place at the same time, you know, maybe on a vacation with their respective families or whatnot. But it just goes to show, you know, at any given time, we can be so close to a person who will one day have a huge impact on us and how in the moment we have absolutely no idea. In Edgar Allan Poe's 1838 novel titled The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, a four-man crew is shipwrecked and lost at sea without food or water. Ultimately, the team decides that they must turn to cannibalism to survive, and they draw straws to decide who will be sacrificed so that the rest may live. The character chosen, and therefore eaten, was named Richard Parker. Well, in 1884, a real ship was shipwrecked, and one of the mates, also named Richard Parker, became ill after drinking seawater. The rest of the crew decided out of desperation to kill and eat Parker before he became too tainted by disease. The remaining men were saved, but charged with murder upon their return to shore. Well, there you have it. Uh, an example, uh, a disturbing example, of life imitating art. Next is a story titled, 
two Dennis the Menace characters emerged in different countries during the same time. You're probably familiar with the cartoon character Dennis the Menace, a lovable but mischievous little boy who burst onto the scene in March of 1951 with his dog, Ruff. But did you know that in the same month of the very same year, just across the Atlantic in the UK, another cartoon, Dennis the Menace, was launched? This British Dennis was a bit more sinister than his American counterpart, intentionally rather than inadvertently causing chaos. Amazingly, there are no signs of plagiarism in this case. The characters were made independently but simultaneously, ultimately occupying a similar place in their respective country's cultural landscape. You know, as statistically improbable as this sounds, situations like this uh, can and do occur. I mean, people in different parts of the world, you know, seem to have that aha moment at in, you know, creating or inventing a certain product. And it's, you know, it can be eerily similar in that it occurs at the very same time. There's a controversy and speculation over who was actually the first person to fly an airplane. Now, most of us have been told that that honor goes to the Wright brothers, whose first flight lasted one minute and 36 seconds and covered uh, 1,244 meters. Uh, but stability problems plagued the Wright brothers' invention. They made modifications during 1904, but didn't actually solve the stability problem. And then in uh, uh, the Wright 1905 flyer, and, and that flyer was the world's first practical airplane. But meanwhile, some claim that a man, man named uh, Gustav Whitehead was just ahead of the Wright brothers, and Gustav was an early aviation experimenter who allegedly made a successful flight in 1901. So it makes you wonder if some of the geniuses in our world's history were essentially, you know, tapping into some unseen creative consciousness of sorts. And if that's the case, it might be possible for two people to have, you know, to have that light bulb moment at the same time in history, although in different locations. And then, you know, it's kind of merely a, a race to see who can invent and mass produce their concoction the fastest and their feats are recorded. The public uh, declares a winner and, and the rest is quite literally uh, history. And speaking of light bulb moments, <laughs> it's well known by now that a whole slew of inventors created similar versions of the light bulb during and even before Thomas Edison uh, stole the, the spotlight and cornered the market on that particular invention. So again, we're left wondering, you know, how is it possible for multiple people to come up with similar ideas independently of one another at the exact same time? It's, it's almost as though the universe, you know, attaches a new idea to a lure and casts it out into the pond of the world and whoever bites first gets credit for the brilliant new idea. Uh, I guess sometimes when the wind blows just right, you know, multiple fish can bite the same worm at the same time. The Jim twins were separated at birth but led nearly identical lives. Twins and coincidences seem to go hand in hand. For starters, the very likelihood of conceiving twins is relatively low at 33 in 1,000. But frequently, the uncanny circumstances run deeper than that, and the Jim twins are a prime example. Separated at birth and raised by different families in Ohio, they finally met at the age of 39. Both sets of adopted parents named the boys James and called them Jim for short. Both men married two times. Remarkably, both first wives were named Linda, and both second wives were named Betty. Uh, both of the Jims had one son, and they both named their son James Allen. And according to Ripley's, they drove the same car, they had similar jobs, drank the same brand of beer, smoked the same brand of cigarettes, and they even vacationed in the exact same place. That is remarkable. I, I heard about that story a long time ago, and actually, I think uh, if I'm if my memory serves me correctly, I think these Jim twins made it an appearance. It was either on the Johnny Carson show or the David Letterman show, uh, but they had their 15 minutes of fame, and that's wild. I mean, separated at birth, I guess it just goes to show how uh, that twin connection runs pretty deep. Um, they almost lived identical lives there. 
Anne Parrish brought herself the same copy of a book she owned as a child. In 1929, the novelist Anne Parrish was ambling along the Seine River and stopped at a bookstall to browse titles. One of her old favorites, Jack Frost and Other Stories, caught her attention, so she bought the copy for one franc. She then met her husband, who was sitting at a nearby cafe, and showed him the copy. His jaw dropped when he saw what was written inside, her name and address. The copy had been hers when she was a child. Wow. <laughs> Stumbling upon her own book all those years later. Yeah, I don't know. You know, France, Paris, it's a big place. I guess uh, clearly it's not impossible, but uh, still unlikely. But that's that's interesting. Next story is titled Twins Helen May Cook and Clara May Cook Died on the Same Day. Identical twins Helen May Cook and Clara May Mitchell always did everything together. The sisters were born on February 2, 1932, and family members reported a close-knit bond between them from childhood through their golden years. So, when Clara died of a heart attack at the age of 83, it came as no surprise to the family that Helen would die just hours later on the same day. To the rest of us, however, the fact is undeniably eerie. Helen had been battling Alzheimer's for over six years and could have succumbed to her disease at any time. It's, it's how they would have wanted it, remarked Helen's daughter in an interview with USA Today. Now, it's sad that they passed away, but at the same time, heartwarming to know that nothing could keep them apart, you know, not even death. Next story is titled, Zhu Weifang Saved a Drowning Father and Son 30 Years Apart. It would have been an incredible story without the coincidence. 80-year-old Zhu Weifang of Jiangsu Province, China, saved an 8-year-old boy from drowning despite his advanced age and recent injuries. But, according to Newsweek, the events took an odd turn when Zhu discovered that 30 years prior he had actually saved the boy's father from drowning as well. With those odds, it's clear why some people believe in guardian angels. All right, so, uh, you know, Mr. Wai Fang is single-handedly keeping the branches of that family tree from breaking. Uh, that's, that's astonishing, like truly baffling. Uh, equally perplexing, in my opinion, though, is why do people in that family keep almost drowning? <laughs> Might be time to relocate to the interior part of the country and stay the hell away from the coastline. Uh, they're kind of pressing their luck, and with uh, Mr. Wai Fang, he's not getting any younger. There's only so many times a guy can be a hero, if you know what I'm talking about. Royce Burton explained how a Texas ranger saved his life, and the ranger walked in mid-story. Royce Burton experienced an incredible coincidence in front of an entire classroom of witnesses. Burton, a teacher at a New Jersey university, decided to tell his class a story that had taken place back in 1940, back when he was a Texas Ranger in the Rio Grande. As the story went, he had become disoriented while climbing out of a canyon and nearly lost his balance just as he reached the top. At just the right moment, another Ranger stepped in and dragged him to safety by his rifle strap. The two connected but eventually lost touch when both enlisted as soldiers in World War II. Just as he recounted the story, who should walk into the classroom but Joe, the other ranger? Joe had tracked him down all those years later and just so happened to walk in at the precise moment that he was telling his story to the classroom. All right, it's hard to top that one. <laughs> all those years later... And he comes in at the exact moment the dude's sharing the story. Uh, crazy, crazy. I do have a, uh, a few honorable mentions that I'd like to pile onto our list. Uh, this, this next one I rounded up is actually, it took place in my home state of Nebraska. And it's, it's a doozy. On the evening of March 1st, 1950, Choir practice was scheduled to take place at the West Side Baptist Church located in Beatrice, Nebraska. Martha Paul, who had been the leader of the choir for 30 years, required all members to be on time for the Wednesday night practices that started at 7.20 p.m. At 7.25 p.m., the town heard a large explosion that shattered house windows and caused a power outage. 
Upon investigation, it was discovered that the blast came from the church, and it was so destructive that it destroyed the entire structure. That afternoon, Reverend Walter Klempel was at the church, and he lit the coal furnace at about 5.30 p.m. to prepare for the choir practice that night before leaving. Authorities suspected that a broken pipe may have leaked gas into the church and caused the explosion when it reached the lit furnace. Although 15 members of the choir were expected to be at the church when the incident happened, there were no casualties as everyone ran late for different reasons, as reported in the, in the Nebraska State Journal clipping via newspapers. Choir leader Martha Paul was strict about punctuality, and it was an extremely rare occurrence for members to be late. On that particular night, however, all 15 people were not present. Typically, members arrived at church at about 7.15 to prepare for practice. High school student LaDonna Vandergriff was doing her homework before the practice, and she was having difficulty with one geometry, geometry problem. She was already running late, but she decided to finish her homework before heading to church. Two other high school girls were late because they wanted to finish listening to a radio show that ended at 7.30. The pianist wanted to get to church early, but she took a nap after dinner and was only awakened by her mother at 7.15. Two other choir members couldn't get their cars to start, which left them without a way to get to the church. Joyce Black, a stenographer, was feeling lazy that night and didn't leave early as she usually did. She was getting ready to depart when the explosion happened. Harvey All was at home taking care of his children as his wife was away. He thought about bringing his boys to choir practice, but he lost track of time. By the time he checked his watch, it was already too late. The fact that all choir members escaped the church explosion was baffling to the community, especially since all of them were known to be prompt. Based on the attendance of choir members in the past, there was a one in a million chance that all the choir members could be late on that fateful Wednesday night. One choir member said, Most often everyone was on time. I can't remember a time where anyone came late. The incident was so bizarre that it was featured in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries that aired in 1990. The explosion was so destructive that if the choir was there, no one would have made it out alive. Some say that it was a stroke of luck or a big coincidence, but many in the town of Beatrice believe that it was divine intervention that saved the lives of all the choir members. All right. <laughs> what what happened here? Is it luck? Is it coincidence? Is it synchronicity? Was there divine intervention with this one? You know, you could be the judge, and, and I guess nobody can say for certain, but we have to admit it is certainly so strange. And before we get to the mother of all synchronicities, I wanted to share with you a few short accounts that this episode wouldn't be complete without. And one of the one of these uh, is in Norway. Uh, Norwegian fisherman uh, Waldmar Andersen had caught a codfish along the North Sea. He gutted the fish, and inside its stomach he found the gold earring his wife had lost the previous week. <laughs> That's wild. That's crazy. Also in 1918, the wife of Howard Ramage lost her wedding ring in a drain. 36 years later, 36 years later, a man in Vancouver found the ring inside the stomach of a fish, and he gave it back to Howard Ramage's wife. How about that? All those years later. And then we have a 15-year-old named Robert Johansson caught a 10-pound codfish in a Norwegian fjord. I love saying fjord. <laughs> and he gave the fish to his mom to prepare for dinner. Inside the fish, the mom found a diamond ring that was actually a family heirloom. She had lost the ring while fishing in that same fjord 10 years earlier. And if you're looking for a less fishy story, uh, there's the true account of Vera Cermak of Prague. Vera was depressed after learning that her husband had been unfaithful to her. So she threw herself out of the third story window. To her surprise, she did not land on the pavement, but rather she landed on top of her husband, who coincidentally happened to be walking below at that very same moment. Uh, she survived the fall, but he did not survive the impact. 
And that story is brought to you by Karma, ladies and gentlemen. And while we're on the subject of falling out of windows, there's always the tale of Joseph Figlock. In the 1930s in Detroit, a man named Joseph Figlock was walking down the street when a baby landed on him. The baby had fallen from a high window on the apartment building. Uh, luckily, Joseph had broken the baby's fall and both survived without major injuries. A miracle, you might say? Yes, but it gets even stranger. A year later, the same baby fell from the same window and landed on none other than Mr. Joseph Figlock, who just so happened to be walking by at that very same moment. Once again, both he and the baby survived. All right, it needs to be said here, folks. <laughs> How many times does a baby need to fall from an upper story apartment window before somebody calls child services on them? What's the, what's the over-under on that one? Just saying. Uh, but before we take this train all the way to the station, I just wanted to pause and ask you to do me a solid. Uh, go ahead and rate and review this podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I hope you're enjoying it so far. Uh, go ahead and spread the word to your strange uh, family and friends who might might enjoy it as well. And uh, also feel free to check out my other podcast. My other one is called Paranormal Dads. And uh, exploring the world's monsters, myths, and mysteries with my good buddies Eddie and Pat. So if you enjoy this show, I'm sure you'll enjoy that one as well. Last but not least, I have for you a so strange super synchronicity. You may have heard this one before, but if not, it'll leave you scratching your head. It's a presidential puzzler of sorts, the kind that makes you wonder if history really does repeat itself, and if so, why? Abraham Lincoln was elected to Congress in 1846. John F. Kennedy was elected to Congress in 1946. Lincoln was elected president in 1860. Kennedy was elected president in 1960. Both, both men were particularly concerned with civil rights. Both wives lost a child while living in the White House. Both presidents were shot on a Friday. Both presidents were shot in the head. Now, this gets even stranger. Lincoln's secretary was named Kennedy. Kennedy's secretary was named Lincoln. Both men were assassinated by Southerners. John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated Lincoln, was born in 1839. Lee Harvey Oswald, who assassinated Kennedy, was born in 1939. Both assassins were known by their three names, and both names are comprised of 15 letters. <laughs> Trust me, it gets even stranger. Lincoln was shot in the theater named Ford. Uh, Kennedy was shot in a Lincoln car made by Ford. Uh, both uh, Booth and Oswald were assassinated before their trials. A week before Lincoln was shot, he was in Monroe, Maryland. And a week before Kennedy was shot, he was with Marilyn Monroe. And the final kicker, uh, Lincoln was shot in a theater and the, assass the assassin ran to a warehouse. Uh, Kennedy was shot from a warehouse and the assassin ran to a theater. Well, I'm not really sure what I can possibly say to analyze or explain that level of synchronicity. That's a 10 out of 10 on the strangeometer. You know, was, was John F. Kennedy the reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln? It's certainly one theory, and uh, I suppose that's a rabbit hole that we can fall into on, an, on another episode. But uh, meanwhile, keep an eye out for synchronicity in your life. You know, maybe you find meaning in small moments like seeing 11-11 on the clock, or you get a warm, fuzzy feeling when a, you know, a cardinal lands on your porch on the anniversary of your grandma's death. Uh, one thing's for sure. Those who believe in synchronicities tend to experience it more often, and those who look for deeper meaning in everyday life tend to be the ones who find themselves at the right place, at the right time, to be on the receiving end of some, some good luck, some good fortune. And perhaps there's really no such thing as luck. Maybe these chance encounters, these one-in-a-million moments are being orchestrated by a force we simply don't understand. 
In any case, we can continue to appreciate these cosmic coincidences when they occur, and I'm sure the world will continue to provide us with sensational synchronicities because we live in a world that is absolutely, utterly, positively so strange.